Let's turn to Romans 2 and Romans 16 today. I'm going to use a pugilistic metaphor. I tested that on a couple of people this morning, and they didn't know what it meant, which is okay. It means boxing. Paul used it on two occasions, one in which he said a certain messenger of Satan was pummeling him, pounding him, and another in which he said in 1 Corinthians 9, 26, I am not as one who beats the air, pounds the air, box. He's not a shadow boxer. He connects. His punches connect. Never more is this true than in the epistle of Paul to the Romans, arguably his last epistle, his last epistle to a church written in about 52 AD. So if you're ready in Romans 2, we're going to continue in, I think I'm going to call this message, Beating the False Teacher. There are issues in here about the angelic conflict and how it's resolved right within the epistle of Paul to the Romans, or how it's revealed to be resolved in Paul's epistle. We've been sorting out who's talking. And Romans deals with two antithetical messages. One is the message of this person we call the teacher, with a capital T for now. The other of which is Paul the Apostle. Paul's gospel is revelatory. It is Athanasian in the sense that it reveals Jesus Christ emphatically as divine. It's Trinitarian, and it shows the interlocking saving action of the triune God, all three persons. It's liberating. It's transformative. It's participative in that people are brought into Christ. It's immense. It's immediate. It's glorious. It's the gospel of the glory of the Christ, which in our own time, as in Paul's time, the God of this age is blinding the minds of people to the glory of the gospel. I saw something this morning that was, to me, I don't approve of it, but others do. We've got to reach the next generation. And so we do it by entertainment, strobe lights, torn jeans, and that kind of thing. The preacher I've done that before, but it was because there was no other jeans to wear many years ago. But the way to reach the next generation is to have a fresh illumination on the glorious revelation of the gospel and preach it and proclaim it without apology, fearlessly and boldly, and have that be reaching the next generation. If they want the rest of the stuff, they can get it anywhere else, but the word is where it's at. So Romans 2, we're continuing. We've already gone up to 2.16. We're unraveling here where Paul's doing the talking and where he allows this false teacher to do the talking and where Paul also shows that this false teacher's own gospel is self-defeating, that it's, it's not, it doesn't make sense, that it's absurd, that anything that says that you're justified by the works of the law has to be crazy in the light of the atoning work of Jesus Christ. The true gospel does not marginalize the cross. It doesn't sideline the Messiah. It doesn't diminish the power of the Holy Spirit. It does the opposite. It puts Christ at the center of everything. It's all about the Son of God. It emphasizes his, the event of the cross, followed by resurrection, ascension, and enthronement preceded by incarnation, and preceded even before that by an eternal, essential existence as God. So all of these items are going to come forth. 
But here's Paul again replying, and I I recommend the other messages that got us up to this place so far in Romans, but here's where he starts in 2.17. Paul is speaking now, and he says this, but if you call yourself a Jew, he's speaking here to a specific person. There's been an interpretation of Romans that puts forth the idea that Paul is speaking against the Jew generically, or Jews, or Judaism. Nothing could be further from the truth. He's speaking against a Jewish teacher who is a believer in the Messiah, but who has misrepresented the gospel. This person has been the lifelong, or the new lifelong, ever since Paul started preaching. This person has been his nemesis, his adversary, And he has been troublesome and bothersome in everywhere Paul went, everywhere Paul planted churches, everywhere Paul watered what was already planted, this adversarial gospel came in. Paul attributes this to the adversary named Satana. When he uses that word for Satan, he uses it in connection with a false gospel and with our defeating of it. So Paul is talking to this person who is a moralizing teacher who, of course, berated the pagans in 118 to 32. That's his spiel. That's his representative speech. And Paul now takes him to task. He started with 2-1, but now he's going into in earnest. He said, if you call yourself a Jew, and now he's saying in quotes what this teacher says, you rely on Torah, Unfortunately, the word in the Greek is nomos, and it doesn't really capture it. It's not, it's not nomos as a general generic law. It's Torah. So just be aware of that. Remember the movie, Torah, Torah, Torah? Just remember, nomos, or law, is referring specifically to Torah. This Jewish teacher relies on Torah, and he boasts in it, basically, If you call yourself a Jew and rely on the Torah and boast of your relation to God, which is what the sense here is, and the RSV picks it up as well as the NRSV, you don't boast of God, but you boast of your relation to God. And verse 18, and you know his will, which is your own self-declaration, and you approve of the things that really matter, being instructed from Torah, And then in verse 19, he says, and if you are convinced that you, again, it's very important to recognize here, the personal nominative singular pronoun, he's talking to a specific individual whose arrival he anticipates in Rome because the guy's been everywhere else. And so are his cronies and so are his followers, his sycophantic followers that follow him that Paul calls on one occasion, ministers of Satan who transform themselves, for even Satan transforms himself into an angel of light, as he says in 2 Corinthians 11. So then, if you are convinced that you are, quote, a guide to the blind, that's the Gentiles, the blind, the benighted, you are a light in the darkness, verse 20, a corrector of the foolish, All of these things he claims to be. A teacher of small children, meaning that as a special Jewish teacher, he teaches the Gentiles, which he likens to infants or small children that need to be taught the elements of Torah. And notice what he says here. 
having the embodiment of the truth in Torah, in the law. And that sometimes is a general term for the scriptures of the Old Testament, including the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, the prophets, the writings, the Psalms. But notice what he says. This is what the teacher assumes, that the embodiment of truth is the Torah. Paul says in Laodiceans, also known wrongly as Ephesians in 421, that the embodiment of truth is Jesus. You search the scriptures, Jesus said to those who were misled like this false teacher. You search the scriptures because in searching the scriptures, you assume that you have eternal life or the life of the coming age. But you don't come to me that you might have that life. The Torah's main objective and its main function is attestation. It testifies of Jesus Christ. And so the embodiment of truth is not in Torah. And so the gospel does not mean that you take Gentiles and turn them into obedient Jews, starting with circumcision of the males, and then followed by a comprehensive following of the Torah. That's what this teacher is doing. And he sidelines the Messiah. Oh, the Messiah is involved, just like in today's Christian gospel. The Messiah is involved, you see. He's the Lord, but you've got to make him Lord. You've got to do this. You've got to do this. You've got to witness. You've got to worship. You've got to fellowship. You've got to pray more. You've got to pray through. You've got to do all these things. And the emphasis is, is on you, and the gospel is anthropocentric instead of the emphasis being on Christ and Christocentric. That's the gospel we're trying to unchain, unravel from its conventional construal, its contractual idea. You do this, and God will repay you with this. You do this bad thing, God will retributively pay you back. That's the whole idea of this false gospel. So Paul is taking this teacher to school. In fact, the pugilistic metaphor I think you're going to see is coming into play. Paul had been on the ropes for years, and this teacher's been buffeting him. And the word buffet is the old King James in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 7 through 10, for beating, pounding, which is why I select for the title, beating the teacher. Paul is like Rocky. He, he's on the ropes the first time, but then he comes back and he lands punch after punch after punch after combination punch till he gets this teacher on the ropes. Then he delivers a final shot. Let's call it a right cross the right view of the cross, and knocks this guy down for once and for all, for the 10 count. Now, during the course of this, Paul was more like Roberto Duran than Sugar Ray Leonard. He said, no mas. And he said to the Lord Jesus Christ, the risen Lord, no mas, no more. Take this away from me. This messenger of Satan who's beating me up, he's got me on the rope. Stop the fight. And the Lord says, in effect, my grace is enough for you, for my power is made perfect in your weakness. Stay in the fight. You'll win it after all. I say that to you. I say that to myself. And the risen Lord has said that to me many times. When I've said, all right, take me out of the game. I've had enough of this. And he says, my strength is made perfect right where you are right now in weakness. Stay in the fight. You'll win it after all. Stand with your loins girt about with truth, with the breastplate of righteousness, with the sword of the spirit, with the helmet of salvation, with the shoes of the preparation of the gospel, 
of universal reconciliation. And you'll stand after all. When all is said and done, you will stand. That's Ephesians 6, 10 to 13, incidentally. So I'm the preacher today, and I wandered a little bit, but let's look at it again. In verse 20, then, he says, you, and this is in the mind of this other preacher, I'm a guide to the blind. I'm a light to the, in the darkness. I'm a corrector of the foolish. You ought to see what I did in 118 to 32. I'm a teacher of small children. You see, the Gentiles, the pagans, the people whom Paul is writing to as the Israel of God, essentially, along with other Jews who are participating in the faithfulness of Messiah. He's teaching the small infants. You see, we're the adults, and we've got to teach these small infants, these pagans. We've got to teach them Torah. We've got to start with the males being circumcised. Because in Acts 15.1, if they're not circumcised, they're not saved. Wow. Glad Peter stood up that day and said, we are convinced and we believe that we will be saved, Jews, just like them, by the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, don't you? How that, well, though he was rich, he became poor, so that through his voluntary poverty, we would become exceedingly rich in him. He goes on, and this is where it gets really emphatic, and again in verse 21, then you, teacher of another, you, teacher of another, don't you teach yourself? It's like physician, heal yourself. You prescribe these things to everyone else. Have you ever been to a physician? I've been to physicians before, and it was a long time ago, and you'll never know who they are, and they're already home with the Lord, so it doesn't matter. But they prescribed all these dietary restrictions, and the guy was shaped basically like a basketball. Now, I wasn't judging him for that, but I was saying, I could have said, hey, physician, heal yourself. But he was a very good physician, but he didn't look like he was in good shape at all, and I don't know, he had a lot of other things going on. But uh, there's no judgment there, but this is what's happening. Hey, physician, heal yourself. Hey, teacher, when you teach others... Do you also teach yourself? I like to say it, three fingers coming back at you. The thumb arising to God, the three fingers coming back to you, the pointing of the finger kind of a thing. You teacher of another, don't you teach yourself? The word sauton, yourself, is reflexive, accusative, masculine, singular pronoun. You, he's specifically addressing an individual here. Somebody who's had him on the ropes until now. But here's Paul in the pugilistic metaphor that's called boxing. He's not shadow boxing. He's connecting. Every punch connects in Romans until, you're going to find out shortly, Satan is crushed under your feet shortly. Paul's victory over this adversarial messenger is for you. It's for your benefit. It's so that you will crush Satan under your feet. To crush Satan under your feet doesn't mean naming and claiming things or pleading the blood of Jesus. It means unchaining this gospel that he's tried to veil for centuries, and he's doing a different kind of veiling, but a very effective one today since the Reformation. And by certain interpretations of our own political and social ideas in Western culture about contracts rather than covenants. So 
Do you teach yourself? Verse 22, Paul says, you who preach, quote, do not steal. Do you steal? You who say, do not commit adultery. Do you commit adultery? You who detest idols, do you rob their temples? And you say, where's all this coming from? I'll show you in a minute. You who boast in Torah, you who boast in the law, you who boast in Torah, that is in your fulfillment of it. Do you dishonor God by violating Torah? For as it stands written, and this is a knockout punch or a potential one, and he's uh, quoting directly here from Isaiah 52, 5, the name of God is blasphemed among the pagans because of you. The name of God is blasphemed among the pagans, meaning your gospel is a blasphemy among the pagans. Your gospel is an idol flaunting itself against the knowledge of God. Your gospel, which you boast in Torah, is actually a violation of the Torah, which says, listen, Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And you will love the Lord your God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Now, Paul is severely indicting the teacher here, who is theoretically, now this is a theory, and I believe I tend toward this, and I know we've had conversations, and it's, I love these conversations. I love friendly debate. When it gets hostile, I cut it off. I'm not interested. But I love friendly debate. But I believe that this teacher is theoretically, let's just say theoretically, because it won't hurt us either way, if he is or isn't, Paul's thorn in the flesh. I'll tell you why. Because when Paul speaks about it, he calls this thorn in his flesh, which is a really bothersome thing to him. That, of course, is a metaphor. And a metaphor means supplying something for comparison that it doesn't mean. In other words, a thorn and flesh. Now, if you divide this metaphor, then you say, well, the thorn isn't literal, but the flesh is literal. But in a metaphor, both parties are not literal. The thorn in Paul's flesh. Well, let's just put it this way. We say, we used to say, before everything went below the belt in all physical analogies, we used to say, so-and-so is a pain in the neck. But now we say so-and-so is a pain in the ass because everything's gone below. See, everything's gone lower now. It's all about everything that's below the belt. Everything has to deal with that. And every name you call somebody has to do with some anatomical feature below the belt. Now, so I'm being vulgar here, of course, but if I say so-and-so is a pain in the neck or a pain in the gluteus maximus, I don't mean literally that they're a pain. I mean that they're a person. And I don't mean literally in my gluteus maximus. I mean something about in my emotional makeup, in my soul, in my spirit. This person is bothersome to my soul or my spirit or my being or my job or my profession. And that's what Paul is saying. We can't divide this up as I used to and say the thorn in the flesh. This is literal, meaning it had to be a physical ailment. And the thorn is some illness, some disease. And all kinds of speculations have arisen from that. But I think the word here is specifically when he gets to interpret the metaphor, he said there was a thorn given to me in the flesh. And then he says, 
angelos, which is the word for angel, but more generally of messenger, angelos, satana, S-A-T-A-N-A. Angelos, that's an N-G when you put the two G's together in the English transliteration. Angelos, satana. One of the few times Paul actually uses the word Satan for adversary. There was a thorn given to me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan. That's not metaphorical. That's real. This, this messenger of Satan was the nemesis of Paul, the bane of Paul's existence, the challenge against his message constantly. And this is a person. In other words, this thorn is really a person. My flesh is really my whole being. It's a metaphor. And so, again, let's theoretically, but if this theory isn't true, it doesn't diminish the pugilistic metaphor. Let me show you why. Paul says, this messenger, the adversary, to beat me up. It's a pugilistic metaphor. He's pounding me. He's got me against the ropes here to the point where Paul's constantly thinking, read read Galatians and you'll find out how bothersome this guy was. He shall bear his judgment, whoever he was. I wish that he'd be cut off. That kind of thing. Paul against the ropes. And so we have Rocky part one and two, at least here, where the first time Paul goes the distance with this guy, but he is Roberto Duran. Remember that fight? I don't know if you're uh, any of you are as old as I am, but Roberto Duran, by the way, was one of the best fighters ever. And so I don't, dismiss him and his effect because he did this he simply said no mas no more and i certainly won't diminish the apostle who said no mas stop him take this away from me i'm on the ropes here can't you see ref stop the fight corner man throw in the towel come on look at this And Jesus knows how Paul, Jesus knows Paul's going to win eventually. So he says, my grace is enough for you. Up against the ropes is when my power kicks in. You're going to have a supernatural endowment. And by the time you read or write your last epistle, you're going to knock this messenger of Satan right out of the ring. He's going to fall off the ropes and go into the crowd. And the pagans will see who he really is. So Paul severely indicts this teacher. That's what's going on in Romans, especially one through four. That's what's going on in Romans before Paul gets totally off the ropes. And in Romans five through eight, the unchained, glorious gospel of unconditional grace toward people with no capacity comes forth gloriously. And it's all Paul from 5, 1 to 8, 39. Then he gets into the question. It's not a parenthesis. What about the Israelites who don't believe? And Paul says his heart's breaking for them. But by the time he gets done with that whole question in Romans eleven thirty two, he recognizes that God in his infinite wisdom, which people like to say, and it's true, oh, the depth of the wisdom of God. I see what he's done now. He's put in the same maximum security prison that nobody can get out of, both the pagans and the Jews, so that he can have mercy on the whole bunch of them and open the doors that they can all come out. 
The prisoners can be set free. The spirit of the Lord is upon me. He has anointed me to preach good news to the poor and liberation to the prisoners. Who's imprisoned? Everybody. Who's the liberation for? Everyone. What did the triune God do in the saving act of Jesus Christ? Save a few, elect a few. Was his atonement limited? That very word, limited atonement, is the way that the gospel is blasphemed among the Gentiles and the Jews. This guy's beating him up. Angela Satana. Beating up Paul from the very beginning of his missionary endeavors. So he deploys a pugilistic metaphor. Paul is not a stranger to it because, as I said, he said in Romans or in 1 Corinthians 9.26, I run this race to win it. I don't box the air. I'm not beating the air here. I'm not having no purpose in life. My punches connect. Never do we see them connect better than in Romans. Also in Philippians 3.1 to 4.2. Also... In Galatians, but most notably right here, Paul hits this teacher with a flurry of well-aimed punches. Paul does not directly accuse this teacher. Now, this is important here. He doesn't directly accuse this teacher of these various egregious violations of Torah, like robbing temples. But he does know that the Romans know about people like him that are charlatans in 19 AD, a famous event happened. Teachers like him who gloried in Torah and said, we're here to teach you infants and to lead you out of the darkness and said all those things that the teacher says, actually were charlatans They ended up robbing the temple of the Roman gods. And they ended up doing egregious things, adultery, even theft and all these other things. Paul's not charging this guy with that, but he's reminding the Romans that there are pious people that glory in the law and that moralize and castigate and scold you and require things from you or God is retributive just like your Thor or your Zeus. He's going to thump you. In this eschatological last day, where, of course, nobody knows if they're justified or damned until that day. So you're always insecure about eschatological judgment. Not knowing that the primary eschatological judgment happened on a hill called Golgotha in 30 A.D. Paul hits this teacher with a flurry of very well-aimed punches. He's been trained to do this. Paul does not directly accuse this teacher of these things, but he does know that the Romans know about this famous event in which certain Jewish teachers robbed the temples of the pagans while putting on the front of piety and functioning in the guise of teachers of the benighted pagans. The strong implication, however, is that this very teacher is guilty of the equivalent of these things, This is my view. The teacher is actually guilty of the equivalent of these things because of the gospel that he preaches, because of the message that he delivers, which is anthropocentric, contractual, depicting of a retributive God of justice instead of a God of benevolence and beneficence who sent his son 
to redeem the human race. So I would say that he hits this teacher in such a way to show that while he's not guilty of those same things that these other teachers did, he is equivalently guilty because all these things can be found in the preaching of a false gospel. So the strong implication here is that the teacher is guilty of the equivalent of these egregious violations, idolatry, adultery, dishonoring God by the presentation of another gospel. Read Galatians 1, 8, and 9, 2 Corinthians 11, 1 to 4, 2 Corinthians 11, 15 to 16. Such people are the enemies of the cross of Christ in Philippians 3, 18, which we're going to see reiterated in Romans 16, 17. Their God is their own personality. Their end is destruction, which means that God will judge But he does not judge people. He judges the Adamic ontology. He does not damn people. He judges the Adamic ontology. The Adamic ontology is when we continue to function in the Adam who disobeyed and brought us into the state of sin and death. But that's coming up. That's going to be a much more difficult thing to unravel. But... Paul then says that this gospel is not another at all. It's not another gospel. In other words, you don't have the choice between this gospel and another gospel. Well, let's reconcile the two. He said, this isn't another gospel. This is a heteros gospel. This is a gospel that deserves utter annihilation. This is like you go in that village, Joshua, and wipe everybody out. Only this is applied to the reality of this gospel. Kill it annihilate it, destroy it, dismantle it. Why? Because this gospel teacher is just like the thief who comes to rob and destroy and kill. Paul is so glad, and I hope that I'll be glad someday, that God didn't remove from me certain adversities. And believe me, I have begged him to do so. Why this bizarre series of events a few years ago. Why? What? What? I can't handle this. I'm done. Take me out of the game, coach. I'm finished. Put somebody else in. I'm done. Please, no more. No more. No more. And every time I get the same answer, stay in a fight. You'll win after all, son. Carry on, my wayward son. No, that, that's, that's Kansas. Speaking of Kansas, no. They can't even have good weather for a game out there. How are they going to win? They can't win. Now, I'm going to make a statement that I never thought I'd make being from New England. Also, I think the Steelers can beat New England. That's just my personal opinion. That's a conversion. <laughs> Had a conversion. Took me, you know, I've lived here for, what, 38 years or whatever. Finally have, there he goes. Here we go. I believe they can do it. And the Chiefs, well, they can't even have weather for a game out there. Anyways, regarding, see, I'm in pugilism, so I can shift the football, I can shift to rugby, which I even like better to watch, because that's when you really get pounded and there's no equipment. So, regarding the thorn in Paul's flesh, we're dealing with a metaphor. It's not a literal thorn, and it isn't Paul's physical flesh. It's something far deeper than that. And God allowed this to happen so that Romans, when it was finally written, we could see in 2017 a great 
manifestation of God's unconditional grace and a salvation effected through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ, not the faith of man. And we're going to see this in Romans 4 because there's two ways to read Romans 4. One way seems right, but it's a thin reading, as Campbell puts it, and I agree. It's a thin reading. It looks like Genesis 15, 6 is saying Abraham was justified or saved by believing. But he believed God. He didn't believe Christ, but he believed God. And there's a thicker reading in which you, re- you see that Romans 4 isn't dealing with justification by faith, but it closes with God handing over his son for our sins and then raising him up from the dead. The whole point is a raising up from the dead, which reveals God raising up the human race with Jesus Christ from the dead as an unconditional act of grace. That's the thick reading. But most people are content with the thin reading and they don't go deep into the Greek text like a pastor is mandated to do. And when you see the thicker reading, you're seeing that it's not a matter of law versus faith. And there really is no such thing as saving faith. Because you're saved by grace through the faithfulness. There is a saving faithfulness. It's the faithfulness of Messiah Jesus. That's a big factor we have yet to Make that as clear as it can be. So in our metaphor, so-and-so is a pain in the neck, let's say, when we used to think above the belt more in our metaphors. So-and-so is a person, not a literal pain, and he or she is bothersome not to your neck or your gluteus maximus, but to you as a person. You in general, perhaps your soul or your spirit So whereas some may try to make this a physical ailment, as I have theorized together with others in the past, it's my theory at least, which has to be proven more and more, of course, that the metaphor is not a literal reference to bodily affliction in Paul. Now, he certainly had some. I mean, when you're beaten five times to the point of death, 39 lashes, and you're beaten with rods or caned all over the body by Roman Lictors, which are the guys that put it on you. And when you're stoned and left for dead outside of a city, and when you're shipwrecked more than once and cling to driftwood all night long, and when a city, a Gentile city, tries to tear you apart in Ephesus, where he wrestled with beasts, metaphor, or when Jerusalem comes down on him to beat him, and thanks to Claudius Lysias, the Romans saved him from that, then eventually, yeah, there's going to be some physical ailments here and there, especially when probably every bone in Paul's body at one time or another was broken or bruised. And he, might, he never really got old, but he must have felt it some days. <laughs> but this was a, this, the thing that bugged him the most. Well, imagine if you were a missionary and you went to a place and established a community of believers who were gloriously happy and joyous and functioning in the participation and the obedience to the faith or participation with Messiah's faithfulness, and somebody else came in and took that all away from them, and you heard about it, not by a cell phone, but by a messenger. It might have taken you a week to hear the message. But then you heard about it. And then you couldn't call on your cell phone or text on your cell phone or email immediately. You had to wait weeks before you sent a messenger back to them and said, how are you doing? 
and have the messenger come back. Somebody like Titus in 2 Corinthians 7. Can you imagine everywhere, though, it's in Corinth. There was a deep problem with this guy in Corinth, Galatia. There was a problem in Colossae. There was a problem all the way up to Rome. That's something that would get to him. So I think there's a good reason to identify this teacher with the absolutely antithetical gospel to Paul's. And even if this is not the case, there's no diminution of the argument that Paul is pounding this teacher. Even if you don't buy that that's the true argument of the thorn in the flesh, you do have to see, I think, that, God, that Paul is definitely pounding this teacher, to use a pugilistic metaphor. So... This teacher who's been the bane of Paul's existence since he became an apostle, the adversary of Paul's message, had Paul against the ropes at one time and for a long time. I mean, picture Paul against the ropes taking punch after punch after punch after punch. And in the midst of it, he's saying with Roberto, no mas. He's not saying it to the ref, literally, he's saying it to the Righteous referee, as Jesus is called in 2 Timothy 4.8. Paul said, the righteous referee will place a crown of righteousness on my head on that day. Now, the Lord, the righteous referee, answered, while Paul's against the ropes, my grace is enough for you, Paul. And I think you might be able to relate to this yourselves at one time or another, or at many times. Stay in the fight. You'll win it after all. Because of my grace. So, through the writing of Romans, Paul effectively knocks out this messenger of Satan, and with him, the false, idolatrous, blasphemous gospel. I don't know if you remember years ago, seems like I pounded this one into the dust. You got to make Jesus Lord to be saved. Lordship salvation. When Acts 2.36 The scripture says, God made him Lord. That was a heresy. That was a blasphemous gospel. That was an idolatrous gospel. It's still running like a filthy filament through the gospelizing of many messengers today. But they'll cloak it with, well, we're going to reach the new generation. Look at these strobe lights. Look at these lights. Look at this sound. Look at me. I'm not wearing a suit. I'm wearing torn jeans. So you can relate to me. Who can relate to you? Well, the new, I think sometimes the new generation looks at that and says, oh, man. What the new next generation needs is not a revitalized activity. They need a re-illuminated gospel that comes forth like it's supposed to be, a revelation of Jesus Christ and his universally saving significance, offering a life that isn't mere ethical, moral obedience in the Adamic ontology, but the putting off of the Adamic ontology altogether in an operation in the spirit of God, which overcomes sin as a power in your life. Let me hit the fourth gear here. Did not this teacher who preaches, didn't he come to steal? to rob the pagans, to steal from these Gentiles the assurance of God's sheer grace, utter grace. Did he who preached not commit adultery, 
not to commit adultery, commit infidelity against the Lord by diminishing or marginalizing or reducing to nothing the fidelity of Jesus Christ? Did not this false evangelist, the phony preacher who abominates idolatry, not rob the pagan temples, as it were? Does not the thief come to rob and steal and destroy, as Jesus said in John 10, as opposed to the good shepherd? Is not this teacher, this preacher, this particular pious Jewish Christian, certainly not all Jews, certainly not all Jewish Christians, by a long stretch, one guy who represents a certain pious sectarian view, this preacher, this particular pious Jew, and certainly caps, all caps, not all Jews, which is the Arian interpretation of Romans, both Arian, A-R-I-A-N, and Arian, A-R-Y-A-N, as if God has thrown the Jews off. So let's just do what we think God of retributive justice does to the Jews. That's what the Nazis thought. Thank God for theologians like Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who had the message correctly and who helped certain Jews escape and who was hanged by the Germans in April of 1945 and who believed in universal reconciliation, especially toward the end. Is this guy not the messenger of Satan? Is not this abominator of idols an accuser of the pagans? He accuses the pagans for exchanging the image of the incorruptible God for an image of men and animals. Isn't this guy doing the same thing? He's distorting the gospel of the glory of the Christ who is the image of God by veiling it in terms of a human performance that's rewarded by a God of justice or human bad performance that's rewarded by a God of retribution, violent retribution, mind you. I can't think of a more violent action than throwing someone into an eternal flame and keeping them alive for eternity. Is God the God of violent, coercive, retributive justice? Or was God in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their sins to them? You're certainly not sure of that if through the teacher's gospel, and you're not sure of that through the construal of Paul's gospel. Here's, see, I'm against the teacher. I'm showing Paul versus the teacher. But you know what we really got to hit? is people looking at Romans and not seeing the distinction of these two Gospels and trying to blend them and saying, well, Paul said this and he said this and they seem to be opposite, but let's reconcile them together. And they come up with a doctrine that is faith alone. You're justified by faith, but it is your faith, your belief, rather than justified or as the word must be redefined the way Paul wrote about it, liberated and delivered and rescued through the faithfulness of the Messiah in his very seed form of Romans 1.17, the faithfulness is of the righteous one. And his faithfulness was obedience and fidelity to God to the extent of death by crucifixion, followed by resurrection, ascension, and enthronement. It's the faithfulness of this one righteous one. And if you've got Karl Barth's church dogmatics 
All you have to read in that 31-volume thing, you're sad you sprung for it, aren't you? Volume 2, Part 2. It's called 2-2. That's all you've got to read. You'll learn there about election, that Jesus Christ is the elected one, and in Christ all shall be made alive. Barth was right about that and attacked by people of the fundamentalist stripe. I don't agree with everything Karl Barth, Karl Barth said, but I certainly know that he had the proper reading in general of Romans and of the Pauline scriptures. So this false teacher himself exchanged the incorruptible image of God, which is Christ, for the corruptible image of man, who is able to discern from a contemplation of the cosmos the power the infinity and the incorruptibility of God. He's supposed to get that from that. Not only is he supposed to get that from that, he's supposed to get that God favors certain things over other things, ethically speaking. So you're supposed to get that from looking at the stars. You're supposed to get that from contemplating the universe. And so God rewards you. He sees that as positive signals, according to this teacher. So he rewards you with the hearing of the gospel and gifts you with faith, according to another gospel. But according to Paul, there is none that seeks God. There's none that understands. And so there has to be an unconditional, divinely initiated and divinely completed act by the triune God centered in Jesus Christ to save or rescue the human race from its depraved condition of utter, radical, ethical, moral incapacity and rational incapacity. All I hope now today is that you see more clearly that we have in the Epistle of Paul to the Romans a dialectic of absolute and irreconcilable contradictories. So turn to Romans 16 for closing, verses 17 to 20. Here's where the angelic conflict comes in, which according to your question, Mike, your excellent question a few weeks ago, just doesn't completely answer it. But what is more satanic than I as a creature, will ascend and be like the Most High. This gospel announces to you, follow me, Satan, to ascend and be like the Most High. First you pass the test of cosmic contemplation, then you hear the gospel, then you have faith, you exercise faith, then you're saved, then after you're saved, you're still a sinner and you're sinful, and so you got to get into an ethical thing called sanctification And the Holy Spirit's off here in the distance somewhere telling you, be good, be good, be good. And be like the Most High. I will, I will, I will, I will, I will. And this is the hardest punch. It's not a matter of what you will. Freedom isn't even a matter of choice. Adam and Esau figured that out after they fell. When they thought freedom was a freedom of choice over good and evil. Freedom is the liberty to respond to a divine initiation. Now, look at Romans 16, 17. This is very climactic in Paul's writings. I urge you, brothers, this is my translation from the Greek text, I urge you, brothers and sisters, to look out for those who cause dissensions and pitfalls, contrary to the teaching which you have learned, and turn away from them. Paul is saying, 
This is the teaching I've defeated in this gospel. Those who what? Teach contrary, contrary to the teaching which you have learned and turn away from them. Very emphatic here. Then he says this in verse 18. For such people do not serve our Lord, the Messiah, but their own bellies, literally. But it means their own personalities, which means, you know what that means? It means they preserve their own Adamic ontology. They don't accept the image of God in Christ as being central to this whole gospel. So they accentuate the distorted image in the Adamic ontology. And that can look really good to people. The Adamic ontology is almost limitless in its capacity to dazzle you. But it's Adamic ontology. And none of it's going to be in the new creation. What's in the new creation is a pneumatological ontology, a spirit-driven life of faith and hope and love and forgiveness. Such people do not serve our Lord, the Messiah, but their own personalities. That is, their own Adamic ontology, which is to be destroyed. Unto destruction in Philippians 3.18, he says the same thing. Their God is their belly. They glory in that which they should be ashamed of, which is the Adamic ontology. And their end is destruction. It doesn't mean God's going to damn and destroy these false teachers, but he's going to destroy the Adamic ontology in which they are functional. So at this final judgment, if people have functioned in this preservation of the Adamic ontology, they're saved according to 1 Corinthians 3.15, but everything they've ever done goes up in a poof of smoke because it's Adamic ontology. God's wrath is not directed toward people, not even the worst of people. It's directed toward the ontology, the existence, the operation, the lifestyle that was handed down to us from Adam after the fall. And that's not anything to do with the higher integration of human living that is in Christ Jesus. That's nothing to do with true spirit-driven ethics. It's a reconfigured Adamic ontology. Just as I believe, and it's hard for me to say, that sugar is the main culprit in killing people today, dietarily speaking, not fat, but sugar. So I make the analogy that Adamic ontology is the sugar. But you can reconfigure it in all kinds of things. Well, just have this big loaf of white bread. There's no sugar in there. Oh, really? I even looked this morning. I make my protein shakes with milk. And now I'm going to start making them with water because I looked at the milk. Twelve sugars. Twelve sugars in milk. And so I'm starting. I have to see this. You don't have to, but I'm, I'm starting to see this. But what I'm doing is taking an analogy, a dietary analogy, and saying, Adam is like sugar, but you can reconfigure him in all kinds of forms that impress stupid Christians. I don't need to say any more about that. So look at what he says then. And by their smooth, plausible speech and false eloquence. In other words, they might be dynamic in their speaking. Eloquence means not just the ability to speak well, but the ability to speak forcefully and convincingly. Like Paul said to the Galatians, this persuasion, you've been persuaded powerfully, haven't you? But it hasn't come from God. This persuasion isn't from God. You were running well. Who hindered you? Who tripped you up? That you should not obey the truth of the gospel. 
and turn away from the God of all grace. And they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. Don't you dare be unsuspecting. This is the year of the soft target in more than one way. You're going to see the enemies of humanity kill like they've never killed before, and they will aim at soft targets, unsuspecting soft targets. Spiritually speaking, you should not be unsuspecting. You should be attentive, awake, alert, vigilant, to be able to discern the true gospel from the false gospel. And even churches should be vigilant and not passive. They should be awake and alert to intruders that could come in to do harm, either by speech or by violence. Be alert. Be aware. This is the year of the soft target. And when I mean soft target, I mean I'm making this false gospel into a soft target. And then, boom. Let's close this thing out and show you how the angelic conflict fits in. And this is only an introduction. For the report of your obedience... Paul goes all the way back to Romans 1.5. It's his job to make the obedience of faithfulness throughout all the, gener- all the nations. For the report of your obedience, which means their participation in Messiah's fidelity, has reached everybody. All the other churches know about you guys. Therefore, I rejoice over you. Paul is alluding to Zephaniah 3.17, where Yahweh rejoices over true Israel. I will rejoice over you with singing, he says. Zephaniah 3.14 and 17. Paul alludes to that and says, As an apostle over this pagan church, I rejoice over you, but I want you to be as wise. Be wise, he said. This is like Jesus saying, Be wise as serpents, but harmless as doves. Be wise as to the authentically good, but innocent as to the evil. Be innocent in the commission of evil. And wise to the authentically good. And notice what he says in verse 20. And the God of peace. The God of reconciliation, in other words. The God of messianic salvation for the human race, in other words. God who made peace by the blood of Christ's cross so that he could reconcile all things in the heavens and earth, visible and invisible, thrones and dominions, on down to the lowest creation. The God of peace will crush the adversary, ton satana, ton satana. Crush the adversary under your feet soon. The grace of our Lord, namely Jesus the Messiah, be with you. By this we recognize that the angelic conflict is being fought and was won right here in Romans and throughout Paul's corpus. This year, you can expect to crush Satan under your feet shortly because his gospel will have been exposed and defeated, and we'll see the word of God beat the hell out of that other gospel. Get it? All right, thanks. Father, we thank you for this opportunity, and we pray that it will be, the truths here will begin to be more and more clear, that's all. That there will be more and more clarity of the distinction between these opposite Gospels. Because when that distinction is revealed, the true Gospel is shown with clarity 
like we've never seen it before. And Father, I can't convince anyone of these truths. And so I must say in Philippians 3.15, God will convince you. 